Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 36. It's produced by Jesus Centered Resources, and my name is Rick. I'm author of the very just-released Jesus Centered Daily uh, just a few days ago. This little uh, bouncing baby got uh, released on Amazon. Um, You can go to my website, jesuscenteredaily.com. If you would like to check it out before ordering one, you can get a free sampler there, a 10-day sampler of this daily devotional that I spent two years immersed in. Uh, It's interesting that um, there's a bunch of reviews already on Amazon for the devotion. And um, I'm always fascinated to look at the mediocre or poor reviews. (laughs) Maybe I have a psychological problem. But one of the common threads amongst the the few that are on there that are sort of mediocre or even poor is that the devotional is not deep enough. And I started thinking about that because my my experience of writing it and then reading it and rereading it like a thousand times in order to get it out is that it's the deepest work I've ever created. But it's sneaky deep. Um, And I hope it's sneaky deep in the way that Jesus is. Uh, we can we we would never consider Jesus not deep. Although in our current church climate, there are some people that if they were just given something that Jesus said or taught, might say it's not deep enough. <laughs> but Jesus had this sneaky way of being very accessible to people. But then what he said, they couldn't get out of their heads. It just kind of dug its own hole after they encountered him and. And in a way, that's what I was hoping for with uh, Jesus Centered Daily, that it would sort of stick with you through your day and that you keep coming back to something that was upending about it to you. So, so actually, those, those uh, few reviews that said that it wasn't as deep as they wanted, I found encouraging because I wanted this to be both accessible and drilling deep through the day. So... Anyway, I encourage you to go uh, check it out. Go to JesusCenterDaily.com if you want a sampler of it. You can check out my, my video intro for the book on there. Or you, can, you can just go straight to Amazon and, and uh, buy your copy today. Please do. And if you've already bought a copy and you're already reading it, even if you have a mediocre review, please do uh, head over to Amazon and post your review. Um, really great reviews are also welcome, just as a PS, but... Uh, whatever review you have, I'd love it if you would post it there. That helps to get the book more attention through uh, Amazon's algorithm. So, so there you have it. Um, and uh, while you're at it, um, threaten all your friends to buy one too. You can tell them I asked you to do that. Um, so this is the second episode in a series I'm calling Present Concerns. And uh, really what we're, what, we're, what we're doing here in this, in this series is taking issues and challenges that are true in our culture right now that are capturing our attention that make up sort of the wallpaper of our life today and we're connecting them back directly back to how Jesus dealt with similar issues in his time in the first episode we tackled the biggie which is division and um, 
I loved that conversation. And today we're going to explore fear. Boo! Fear. Hope I didn't scare you there, but um, I th just like division, fear is another word that fits very well in this, not only in this season of our lives, in the season of our, our, our culture and our history as Americans, but it fits in the season of the year. We're headed uh, toward the end of the month, toward Halloween, which is our boo fear season of the year. So we just celebrate all things spooky um, around Halloween. And so I thought it would be fascinating to explore fear, but um, the, the kind of fears that are our everyday fears, not the sort of spectacular supernatural fears of Halloween or horror movies. Um, it's the everyday fears that interest me the most because these are the ones that really actually impact our lives. They're, they're, our fears form our lives in some ways. They, they direct our decisions and the choices we make in life and the, the challenges that we're facing, they affect everything. Um, and just like our first conversation about division, the Becky Nader is joining me for this one. It's so great to have the Becky Nader back. She's my old partner in crime on this podcast, the co-host for a long time. And I'm really thrilled she's carved out time out of her very complicated life to be a part of this. Becky, thanks for joining uh, the podcast again today. Hi, everybody. I am super excited to especially um, come back at this time um, and, and just be able to kind of tackle some of the really big things that are happening in the world. I, many of you who remember me, remember that I had hoped my life would end up being more like Laura Ingalls Wilder. I wanted to be a pioneer woman. And one of the, the best benefits about my new home and my new life is we have a lot of property, including like a like legit farm. And so this summer I labored deeply over a very large vegetable crop. Like my friend who lives on the East coast was like, Becky has a grocery store at her house. <laughs> like <laughs> I grew every kind of vegetable and I'm harvesting right now. Like we're finishing the harvest and I don't know, there's just something about all of this hard work and labor that we put into this for the last, you know, six, seven months. I mean, we started from seedlings um, planning it out, plotting it, picking more weeds than I can possibly tell you about, um, hand watering and fertilizing. And now, you know, I'm canning and curing and just, you know, freezing and it feels good. I'm just about done with this weekend. I will have nothing left in my vegetable garden. And it's a good feeling to harvest things that you worked for. Yeah, I'm looking at Becky right now, and she's wearing a head covering, a very long, flowing, heavy dress, and some some pioneer boots. So, wow, you really have gone all in, Becky. If you opened I your have... window, if you opened your window right now, the one that's next to you, would we yeah. hear chickens clucking through the window? Yes, the ducks oh. actually. Ducks. But... All right. Well, that's close ducks. enough. Do you yes. you don't you don't eat the ducks, do you? No, but we eat their eggs. They're, they're laying ducks. So oh, okay. yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, we use, they have massive eggs and they're really good for making ice cream. So we save them up and cause you have to use like six eggs for one little thing of ice cream. And we like to make ice cream on Fridays. I'm you guys, I'm, I'm sure that you're like, Becky has gone off of the wagon. Like, but this <laughs> is my life. I love it. I do have so. to say, Becky, I do have to say, I hope you take this the right way, but, but as tender hearted and compassionate as you are, 
I believe that if you had to, you could wring a chicken's neck and cut his head off and eat a chicken. Oh yeah. I think you could yeah. do that. The next phase is like raising pigs for bacon. I'm pretty oh, sure. So don't name them, Becky. Yeah. Don't name them. <laughs> There's gonna be no wilbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that that it's a little hard that our little community here is called the pigs and you're about to slaughter them. But I'm that's sorry okay. guys. I'm embracing this whole like living off of your own like work and food. I think it's a really I just think it's a beautiful thing. It, it brings me back to like, like the center of, you know, if you have to, you can feed yourself. It's, there you it's go. A true thing. As you long as you're willing yourself. to do the, the unimaginable. Yes. <laughs> so um, uh, I was thinking about this last night. Uh, we we're, we we're watching uh, uh, this comedy series, Brooklyn nine, nine that we never watched before the pandemic ever. Um, we, we, uh, I'm a big fan of the comedy series, The Good Place, and the creator that, Michael Schur, has created a few other shows as well. Parks and Rec was a really successful one. But I loved The Good Place so much, we started looking for other shows that Michael Schur was involved in. And then we ended up watching Parks and Rec that we've never watched before as a family. Um, and now the other show that he's involved in and create, helped create is Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I never watched before the pandemic. So we're watching that as a family now. And we, I saw an episode last night that started out with uh, some everyday fears. So I want to I wanna play a little clip for that in just a second. But uh, Becky, I just told everyone that there are things that I'm watching now during the pandemic that I never watched before. Is there anything like that for you that you're watching during the pandemic or listening to that you didn't before it happened? So I definitely, in the beginning of the pandemic, I watched the two-hour press briefings from the White House that were live streamed through various platforms. I think I watched it through the Facebook Live. Um, I watched all of it, all two hours of it every single day, like the Fachi and the all of the people coming up, and I, I watched them, and finally, like, my husband was like, hey, I think you should just take a break from watching those. I know that you feel like you want to be informed on what's going on, but I think we have all the information we can possibly have and it's making you very panicked. He was so, noticing he was noticing your wrinkled yeah. forehead all the time. Yeah, so I did that for probably like a month straight and then I just decided to like reassemble into my life. So I actually have worked harder than I have in my entire life. The pandemic. I almost tripled my revenue for my business during the pandemic. And I don't think I could have done that if I hadn't, I could have gotten sucked into the, all of the things, the Tiger King, the, <laughs> you know, like I didn't do any of those things. I, my husband was really good at being like, Hey, I think we should focus on, on life right now. And so I did, but I, I did get sucked into those briefings every day. Yeah. For, well, um, you know, at least, at least there was a uh, sort of a legitimate purpose for that. It's hard to, it's hard to put a legitimate purpose behind the Tiger King, no. which I did not watch, even though there was all of this attention on it. But I did watch this show. I am watching this show, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I thought I'd just play a little clip from the beginning of one of the shows from their season three. This is a cop show. It's set in a, uh, a Brooklyn precinct. And it's, it's like other, you know, cop shows throughout history, Barney Miller and, and others, where the, the whole uh, sitcom really is based inside 
this precinct and it's got your requisite uh, you know, collection of characters in this show. But in this scene that you're going to hear right now and that Becky's going to watch, um, three of the women in the precinct are uh, going into a little break room and uh, there's a blood drive going on. And one of them, one of the, the policemen in the series is, is an organizer of charity events and all kinds of stuff. She's always doing something. And she's trying to get people to sign up for the blood drive. And she's going to be talking to her two friends in the break room about giving blood. And one of them, a really tough character, uh, refuses to ever sign up for a blood drive. So let's listen to this little interaction about fears. Hey, Rosa. I saw you hadn't signed up for the blood drive yet, so brought you the sheet. Sorry, can't. I'm under 17 years old. Wait, you didn't sign up last year either. Or the year before. Are you afraid of needles? I don't like being stabbed by someone so they can steal my blood. I'm crazy. <gasps> this is amazing. You're scared of something I'm not. I'm tougher than you. I'm tougher than Rosa. <laughs> Take it back, I'm so sorry. Look, it's okay. We all have fears. I'm so claustrophobic, I can't even go into the downstairs supply closet. I hear they have some hot new binder clips, but I'll never know. I'm scared of businessmen. A whole army of gray-suited brads and chads trying to suck my soul and redeem it for frequent flyer miles. Great, so you guys get it. Conversation over, bye. No, 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 no. What if we each agree to face one of our fears today for ourselves and for all of womankind? Ugh, that sounds terrible, but I'm in. Fine, I'll do it too. Guys, come on. I really think this will be good for, oh, wait, you, we're doing my thing? Okay. Okay, there you have it. A little scene from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, and that's, uh, I, I love that little scene because it perfectly portrays how everyday fears can kind of intrude into our life. Even when we're, and, and we tend to take, the, we tend to be kind of embarrassed about some of those everyday fears, just like you saw in this, in this scene. Becky, I'm wondering, what's something that you're afraid of that would be hard for me or other people to guess that you're afraid of? Is there anything like that? So most of my fears have to do with losing home. And it was very early in the pandemic. We hadn't been shut down. We were just kind of getting information that there was a pandemic coming. And we do like make your own pizza night. And I went up to Trader Joe's because I did not feel like making pizza dough. I was going to buy the like pizza dough and the stuff for make your own pizza night and not do it from scratch that night. And I walked into Trader Joe's and there was nothing in the whole store. There was just the flower section had flowers, but the, the freezers were full, all of every shelf, every produce, it, there was no food in the whole store. And I really, I think that was when I first realized, oh, this is a big thing that's happening. And it was terrifying for me. I, I, I left, I called Nick, I was crying. And I went, he was like, just go get hamburgers. Like go, go to a hamburger place. There's still food, go order hamburgers. So I came home with hamburgers and I was literally shaking and I couldn't stop shaking. And I realized it really freaked me out. This idea of, of that there could be no food in places where you expect it. And we went to several grocery stores during that weekend and was the same thing. I actually couldn't go to the grocery store for two solid weeks after that. It was just too alarming for me to see grocery stores with no food in, in their 
in their aisles and that we're very dependent on that. And I did get a little bit food hoardy. I mean, I, that's, I think when we started like canning and, um, I mean, we have a supply of foods so that should that happen again, um, we wouldn't, it wouldn't freak me out as much that we can't buy chicken or eggs, um, or milk, you know? So, um, for sure. I think that that, this has definitely shown me like I'm afraid of that. And it's interesting, even listening to your story there, all of these fears that we have that kind of poke their way into our everyday life, they are, they are, they're like tethered to other things in our life. If you were to really figure out where does this rope lead to (laughs) down there, down in my soul, we, we can figure out, you know, kind of the wellspring of, of these fears um, I don't think I ever told you this before, but uh, uh, it must be like maybe five or six or seven years ago, um, I had an idea for a book. There, there's these uh, books that I only ever saw in people's bathrooms. It was called, they were called Eat This, Not That. They were sort of picture books that showed you what restaurants served and that gave you the calorie ca- uh, count for them. And, and they showed you pictures of their meals. And then they, they were basically saying, eat this at that restaurant, this restaurant, don't eat that at that restaurant. And I was strangely fascinated by these, these books. And so we had, uh, you know, several editions of this book in our bathroom for a long time. And it's easy to just flip it open and, and read it when you're in the bathroom. So I had this idea for a bathroom book called Fear This, Not That, because I was so fascinated by people's fears and how some of these everyday fears that we're talking about um, aren't really based in fact. I mean, they, we fear something and we think that we have a legitimate reason for that fear. But then if you find out exactly how, how uh, vulnerable we are to that fear, you find out we're not very vulnerable. So that fascinated me, this whole idea of this. And so um, I put together a book proposal for this book, Fear This, Not That, gave it to my agent, um, I thought I did a great job with the proposal and he told me he didn't think he could interest a publisher in it. <laughs> so this brilliant little proposal is sitting in a buried computer file somewhere on my computer, but I thought I'd just give you the, the a little excerpt from the introduction I wrote to that book in my proposal to kind of set the stage here a little bit. So uh, here we go. Fear is our most powerful human emotion deeply rooted in the core of our ability to survive as humans. Fear helps us discern threats to our physical or psychological health and either resist them or flee from them. Our fight or flight response is a species survival mechanism. So psychologists say we develop our fears as a result of nurture, not nature. We learn to fear the things that scare us. So fear conditioning is the understandable result of experiences that produce pain. But it doesn't take much to weaponize a fear based on an encounter with a specific dog, for example, into a generalized fear of all dogs. So researchers studying the mechanics of fear in the brain have found that we develop powerful fears whether or not we've actually experienced a trauma involving them. And the earlier we develop a fear, the more likely it is to stay with us the rest of our lives. So weaponized fears cause us to make unreasonable decisions with our time, talent, treasure, and emotional reserves. Fear properly calibrated to actual risks 
is a crucial necessity for life. Fear that overextends itself or even fabricates risk is a harmful and destructive force, stealing from us the, uh, the life the fear response purports to protect. Scientists and psychologists agree that the most effective method for overcoming irrational fear is something called exposure therapy. It requires us to repeatedly confront our fears, which helps us suppress the memory or the environmental trigger that hooks us into that cycle. And that is essentially the purpose of this book, Fear This, Not That. The more we confront the truth about the fears that surround our life, the less likely we are to be at their mercy. So here I've collected the top fears of human beings, fears that cover the breadth of what are common to people everywhere. If we can accept and embrace what is true, we're less likely to live under the influence of fear. So I thought, um, I thought what I'd do here is read uh, a few of the chapter uh, titles, just to kind of sample a few from my original introduction. So um, in this book, you could have explored fears about bees or wasps or cemeteries or child abduction or clowns or doctors or dentists or fire or gaining weight or lawyers or public speaking or shark attacks um, or let's, let's pick one from the end, vomiting, war, and wild animals. So I had 66 of these different uh, short little uh, chapters that were going to be in this book. So it, and it covers, like, like I said in the introduction, the breadth of these everyday fears. So, so Becky, when we think about what kind of species of fear we're dealing with in our culture today, what, what are some fears that come to mind and why do you think we're afraid of these things? Well, the, the ones from your, your book have a lot to do with either loss of life or being like kind of embarrassed in some way, I think, right? Like, yeah. I think if you're vomiting, like you might be like afraid to be embarrassed because you vomited. It's, it, vomiting is kind of a vulnerable thing, you know? Um, Especially if you're yeah. in a public place, yeah. Yeah, like if you're in public or someone you care about sees it happen, it's kind of a, like it could be embarrassing. So I think we do have fears that are about protecting ourselves. Um, and I think right right now we're living in a place where safety is a big concern. And, um, you know, my husband did two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And one of the things that I've learned so much from him is about what it really looks like to live in a place where you're not safe. Mm. Um, and, and to be doing a job, his job in the army was he went ahead of the Marine Corps and he and his team found bombs, dug them up and dismantled them. Um, his exit of the army was because he got blown up and he had to, to be put back together and sent, spent nine months um, in a convalescent hospital. And so, so to really understand like what it looks like to actually be afraid and what it looks like to live in an environment where you are literally afraid all the time, where children were often used as shields, um, where all of these things, like th there was just no safety. And I think we're, in America, we, we don't, we have the same, we have the same sense that we're maybe not safe right now, mm. um, but we actually live in a very 
safe environment when we look at the world. Like there's actually a lot of safety here, but we have the same sense of fear of safety, I think, regardless of that, right? So um, you know what's I interesting think everything- is, Sorry, go ahead. I, I just think everything that we're dealing with right now is that whether it's from the, it, whether it's because of the racial divide or it's the political divide, I think that it's coming from a place of the sense of not really being sure if we're fully safe or if we're creating an environment where we won't be safe or our future generations won't be safe. Yeah, and and I think I mentioned this on our last episode too, that the COVID virus itself, because of how it impacts people, some people it kills and some people don't even have any symptoms and we keep trying to find patterns for, for, so we can understand and, and therefore be in more in control of our understanding of how this works. Because if we can have some measure of control, we're less in fear. So control, the loss of control is, is, is a huge, uh, you know, sort of fuel, fuel supply for fear. And that COVID virus, because uh, it has this unpredictability to it, causes even more fear. I think that's one of the reasons why we fear things like sharks that we're never going to, most of us are never going to encounter. And even if we do, they're likely not going to bother us, but we fear sharks because of their unpredictability. They're underneath the ocean. We can't see them. They're the, we, we, we fear the things that we can't see coming. Um, that's what most horror movies are built around the threat that the people in the film can't see coming. And, uh, boy, talk about a time in our life when we can't see things coming. You know, that I, I, I just heard about last night this plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan by a militant group that was foiled by the FBI. And you think, is this really real? Is this like somebody, is this like a Saturday Night Live skit? What, what is this? But no, it's perfectly real. And one thing that we know for sure that people who do these kind of bizarre things, there is fear fueling their reactions at some point. And fear is such a powerful motivator. Uh, as I said in the introduction to that, fear this, not that book proposal, it's, it is the most powerful emotion we feel, we, we experience in life. And that's for good reason. It's supposed to help us to motivate out of a dangerous situation. But when the situation um, is falsely understood, uh, then our fear response can actually be really damaging. It can hurt a lot of people in our life. I wonder, uh, Becky, how has fear uh, either been a help or a hurt in your life? When I, when I ask you that question, um, what's something that pops into your head that where, it, where it's either helped you or hurt you? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a series of time where fear protected me. Um, I think that in the beginning, when um, my marriage was dismantling, I didn't actually have a healthy amount of fear to understand what was necessary. Um, but once I understood <clears throat> that and I understood the danger I was in and that fear allowed me to make some really big changes, that was really good for me. I think um, sometimes when you're in a dangerous situation, fear can help you make good decisions to get out of that dangerous situation. Yeah. And certainly nobody can live like that. But every day I responded in a way that was, was definitely 
kind of reactive, but I had to be that kind of vigilantly re- reactive in the in those days. Um, but like I said, there's also because of losing my home, I recognize patterns of irrational fears that I have now where things will get triggered and I have to recognize like, oh, this is, you're being triggered right now because you're afraid of losing your home. And so we need to respond in such a way where, where we kind of help get this under control. And, um, Mm. I I love that you you just used that word trigger, by the way, that that's a, that, that is an important word. It's, it's kind of goes back to what I was talking about before. If you take your everyday fear and follow the rope down into your soul, it's another way of saying trigger where you're, yeah. you're, what you're really saying when you say that is there's something much bigger going on down there than just what I'm reacting to now. It's attached to something big and daunting, right? Um, yep. So the, and the, the, I, I was thinking as, as you were talking to my daughter, Emma, who's 17, um, is back at school two days a week. And then she's at home for the other three days. And she's involved in a lot of, uh, she's a leader in a lot of different um, arenas at school. So she's around a lot of students and she has done a great job of uh, following protocols, but a lot of students aren't. And so it was the fear level was just raising in her as she started going back to school because my wife Bev has an immune disorder and she's high risk. So Emma was she would, you know, literally wake up at night thinking that she could be the means to which um, my wife Bev got COVID and, and COVID could kill her. So the, the fear level was just, you know, at DEFCON 1 in Emma. And so her way of dealing with that fear was to start wearing a mask even at home. So when she is at home now uh, and, so, and anyone was, is within six feet of her, she puts her mask on. And it's been hard to get used to this. And, you know, we often forget about the six foot thing because she's our daughter and we're used to holding her and touching her and giving her hugs. And she, she doesn't want it because this is what helps her to not live in fear. If she can wear a mask at home, that gives her the freedom to relax a little bit at home. And we've, Bev and I have realized over time, boy, she really needs that sense of safety that she's not going to be the instrument to which uh, Bev gets sick. So the, the fear, again, and if you think about the, the control issue there, the mask helps give her a level of control over her fear, and that's what lessens the emotion of it. What would you say, Becky, is your relationship with fear today? I mean, when you think about um, fears that just come as part of living your life, what's your relationship with them? I think that word trigger is really important. Um, and that's a mechanism that I learned in therapy was identifying and understanding your triggers so that you can say, Oh, I'm being triggered right now. And you don't say, you don't say this trigger is unnecessary or it's unimportant. You actually follow it and say, Oh, this is what's triggering you right now. And, and, and you kind of lean into it. So it's, um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, this week, and we were talking about how we're planning this mastermind retreat probably in the spring of next year. And she was saying, well, can we wait until after COVID to plan this? And I, I just said to her, I don't think that there is a life after COVID. I think this is a mutating 
disease that's going to be around for a long time, but we're going to put in protocols to deal with that, right? So we've got some some protocols of how we're going to deal with being together and that it's going to, everyone's going to be required to quarantine for two weeks before they go on the trip. And you know, that we're going to, we're going to do some things to live the life. And, and she probably won't come still because for her, that fear is too great. But I think my um, realization is that I, I want to live my life. And so I have to live my life in a way that is safe for myself and other people, but I am going to live my life and I'm going to recognize that like it's hard and that there's things I'm afraid of. I was really afraid of when people started wearing masks, that really like was a bit freaky for me. I'm glad that we have fashionable masks. It really helped me. But when everyone was wearing the medical masks, it was like, oh, I'm in a hospital all the time, but like now there's cute patterns and polka dots and different things and messages on them. And I think it's just a lot easier to see people with that. But I do think that wearing masks is, is, is probably part of our life now. And I, I'm not as afraid of it anymore. It, it was, a, it was fearful at first and I had resistance towards it, but now I realize that wearing a mask is a part of a tool to live my life and to continue mm. to live my life. So that's so, really good. Yeah. I, I, and it, it, it's human beings are made in the image of God and we're fundamentally creative because of that. And we, when we face fears like this, we find ways to soften those fears or to play with, or even upend those fears um, so that we can, as you're saying, live our lives. One of the things I, I, I read in the intro to that fear, this, not that book that will never be published um, is this, the importance of this thing called exposure therapy, exposure therapy in facing our fears. And uh, I was thinking about um, uh, when people see how I engage groups of people, whether they're teenagers or adults, I, I take a lot of risks. We do a lot of experiential things and a lot of uh, dependent on Jesus things. And they're very risky. And sometimes people ask me, why do you appear to be so comfortable in risking those things with that group? I'm not sure I could do that. And my response is always some version of exposure therapy. If the more you risk um, and the more you fail in those risks and the more you see great fruit from those risks, you just get more comfortable. It just becomes part of your norm. So for me, because I have exposed myself to the fears of the fear of risk over and over and over again with people, I'm very relaxed. I'm able to feel more like a musician playing my instrument in that environment and helping others play theirs than I am just kind of seized up with fear. It's simply because I have pointed myself into that fear over and over again and experienced the presence of Jesus with me in the midst of it. So uh, I thought it'd be interesting for us to, to explore uh, a vivid encounter Jesus has with fear and then slow down a little bit to pay attention to what he did, what the people around him did, how they reacted to this fear, how they reacted to how Jesus was reacting, uh, just to really slow down and pay attention to this generative place of fear in our lives and see, see what, what Jesus did with it and why he did what he did with it. Uh, and this, by the way, is one of my all-time favorite Jesus stories. Um, for years, I threatened uh, this home-based youth group that I lead that we were going to do an entire evening on this one story and that I was going to create an experiential lesson around this story. And the story is called The Naked Garrison Demoniac. 
So I'd always tell kids, next week we're doing the naked garrison demoniac and it'll be experiential. <laughs> it was worth a cheap laugh. Um, we actually did do this a few months ago. We, we uh, did a whole encounter in the garrison demoniac and we did a, a, a podcast episode that touched on it as well. But we're going to go back at this story in a different way. We're going to go, go to the story and look for fear in this story and especially how Jesus reacted to it and how the people reacted to him reacting to it. So here we go, the Gerasene demoniac. Um, and this is, uh, by the way, from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. So if you're not driving and you want to flip open your Jesus-centered Bible to Mark 5, 1 through 20, here we go. Uh, they, and this means Jesus and his disciples, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. So basically, your, your, your basic lead horror character in any horror movie is, is who this guy is. Uh, we, I wish we could have given him a horror movie name, but he's nameless. He's just the garrison demoniac. So picking up the story again, constantly, night and day, this man was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby in the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Well, Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Well, their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and the country, and the people came to see what, what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. So as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, but he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And so he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Sorry, I wasn't able to summon a more monstery voice for the voice of the demoniac there. But there you have one of the strange stories in the New Testament, Jesus and the naked garrison demoniac. So Becky, um, let's, let's think about fear in this story. What is fear leveraging in this story? Where, where do you see fear showing up? Because it shows up, in, I think, in lots of different ways here. But what is, what is fear leveraging in this story? What do you see? Well, the, 
this man must have been totally a terrifying person, you know, for the city. Like he lived right outside of there. I'm sure that the parents told their kids not to go anywhere near there. Um, I don't know. The story doesn't tell us like if he had ever harmed anybody, um, but it's very likely that he probably did. Yeah, they chained um, him. They they tried to chain yeah. him down multiple times. So maybe maybe that was because done of that. that without reason. And so it's he probably hurt people. He he probably had caused a lot of pain and sorrow for people in that town. Um, and so it's likely that that town really didn't care for this man very much um, because he had been so mean and because he had done so many terrible things to them. And so, you know, in, in typical Jesus fashion, he could see something that we can't. And he was like, well, this this is a man and he still has an identity. I made him, but he's being tortured by this lesion and I can't stand for that. And so, um, you know, he ends up sacrificing this herd of, of swine. And I believe right after this, that the, the townspeople ask him to leave, right? Because yeah. they killed his, their livelihood. So that, that also created more feel. He cared more about this one man and giving him his identity and his life back than he did about the livelihood of a town who had been tormented by this man. So there's a lot of, there is a lot of drama actually surrounding this whole story, right? Like if you yeah. think about it, it's like Jesus caused more problems for this group of people to save this one man who had done a bunch of bad things. And so hmm. it's not actually a story of like how we expect Jesus to be, but it is kind of what we want him to do. I wish he would just come down and remove this coronavirus, just say, out with you, go into the sea. <laughs> and, 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 and let's say that he did that, go into the sea, and the consequences for us were not at all what we expected. Like these people definitely wanted this guy neutralized. That would have made their life much better, but they didn't want it done in that way. Like, wow, you just sent our entire 2,000 herd uh, uh, livelihood into the sea. So yes, yeah. Jesus, we we wanted the problem to be solved, but not like that. And if you think about the guy in this story, I was just thinking about this as you were talking. It's such He's such a perfect metaphor for what we were talking about before. He was a source of fear that couldn't be controlled. They tried. They tried to uh, you know chain him up and put shackles on him, and he broke them all the time. So imagine the fear of that, that you have this fear living in a cave, wandering the tombs at night near your, your town, and you've tried as hard as you can to contain that fear, but you know that you haven't been able to. And if he can break these chains and shackles, well, what's to keep him from breaking through my door at night? So to live in the presence of a fear you can't control, um, I'm thinking as you're talking about your, your husband's military service before, Becky, to, uh, I've never been in his shoes where you're in literally a war zone. But I think it would feel something like that, right? That, that at any moment, your safety could be compromised because you, you're not in control of all of the variables that are in your situation. So these people um, really have a legit fear and they've had to learn to live with that fear for a long time. And the possibility that somebody could take that fear away must have seemed uh, like, of course we want that. We just don't want it like that. Don't give us a different fear now. 
in place of the, at least, at least we got used to this other fear. Now you've given us something else. The other thing I wanted to mention too, is that we've talked about the, 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 the herd of swine going into the sea and them losing their livelihood and then being upset about that. But if we go back to the story uh, and we slow down, when the people uh, gather to find out, from the people of town gather to find out what has happened, they, they, they came, they observed that the man that had been demon possessed was sit, it says sitting down clothed in his right mind. This very same man that they had was just a, a, a terror to them. It's when they saw the man, they became frightened. And so there's this other level of fear that says, oh my gosh, what happened here? This guy looks normal now. So they're experiencing something supernatural happening and it's somehow connected to Jesus. And they, in an interesting way, they're transferring their fear of the supernatural. Now it splashes onto Jesus because Jesus is the one that brought about this supernatural healing. So, so their first response is to fear him, not to uh, worship him or to, to go, oh my gosh, look at the power of this man. Who is this man? Their first response is, get out of here. <laughs> Uh, there's something uncontrollable, uncontrollable about you. One, one thing I was thinking about in this story, Becky, is do you think it's possible for Jesus to be afraid? I mean, when he confronts this terrorizing person, um, do you think Jesus was afraid of him? Is it, is it even possible for Jesus to be afraid? I don't think so. And the reason for that is because Jesus has authority over what's in that man, they, they have a conversation and it's actually pretty casual and calm. He's like, Hey, so you've got to go. And they're like, please don't send us away. And he's like, I'll make a deal with you. You can go into these swine. He, he walks up to this man and a, he sees the heart of this man and his identity and who he is. And he it's, this is when we talk about Jesus goes after the one and he goes after that one lost sheep. It's a nice thing to say. And we love hearing that except for in this situation, because that man was the one he was the, he was that one person who, who has was made in the image of God. And so therefore he deserved to be fought for. And, but he walked up and he was like, Hey guys, so I have authority here. You know that. And they, they, they bow down to him. They, he, they know he has authority and that whatever he says is going to have to happen. And they bargain and they have a very casual conversation and then they go. So I don't think that Jesus was afraid because he knew everything he was dealing with here. He knew all, all of the players in this situation and exactly how it was going to go. So I love that. And I was thinking about, um, what Jesus said at one point to uh, people who were afraid was don't fear what can merely take your physical life. Fear the one who can, uh, that you, that, that can determine whether you're going to be separated spiritually from him forever. So, uh, and it makes sense because the, the one time you, you really see and. Uh, evidence of abject fear in Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what he was looking into was not just the torture ahead of him, but also knowing because of the plan that they were rolling out to try to redeem mankind, that he would need to, on the cross, be separate in relationship with his father for the first time ever. 
that and so the 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 dread and fear that he felt was this separation from his father and then he lives this out by telling us yeah that's that is the thing to fear <laughs> separation yeah. from your father that's the one thing that you can fear the rest of these things are not worth your fear because they don't have a fundamental impact on your life separation from god does have fundamental impact on your life so it's interesting here i agree with you that that nothing in this scene or situation really scares him but what what would give him fear is if the possibility existed that there would be a gap you know, or separation in this relationship with the father and so so uh when you think about what's happening here about uh Jesus's relationship with fear and how he's modeling that to others. What, what can we learn about his relationship with fear um, and what he's trying to communicate to the others in this encounter about that fear? What, what can we take from this? So I just want to play this out as if social media existed. Sure. Okay. So we're here and there's, let's say that there's some, some people who see, parts of this happening. Right. And like they're, they're taking video and posting it into stories on Instagram and people are watching the pigs, you know, diving into the ocean. And the caption is, you know, our food is gone or, you know, 10,000 pigs dead. Um, Jesus kills them. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like, there's not the whole picture that we just read out here. There's not the context. There's not all of it. It's just all of these little pieces of this story get pieced out into social media and the townspeople go crazy because they see all of these different things. And one of the things that I think about fear right now is that we're processing what's happening online. And I, over the course of, of COVID, have chosen not to do that at all. I have not processed any of my feelings or emotions with anybody, but just my friends one-on-one, -on -one, you know? And when I say one-on-one, -on -one, I mean on Zoom, because that's the only way we see each other these days. But I talk face-to-face -face about what's going on in my life. I don't just go and share about it. And I've watched friends who were literally, like, getting their groceries delivered having their groceries sit on the porch for three hours, then bleaching all of the boxes as they came in, who were not leaving their houses, who were absolutely venomously, who are now pulling their kids out of public school and putting them into private school because they think that it's better for them to be, you know, in person with kids who have totally relaxed on this whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. I've also seen friends who were like, you know, you're going to have to come and put a gun to my head to put a mask on me and don't take my freedoms away. And I'm never going to do this. Who got COVID and their whole family got COVID because they went to a bar big giant barbecue and who got very sick and now are buying in-home purifiers and feeding their kids elderberry gummies and bought 10,000 pounds of sanitizer. And the thing is, they're processing it all online. They're changing because they're processing. And so I think fear can really um, be exponentially spread 
when we process everything that we're doing in bits and parts online. I've oh, wow. seen businesses who had to take down their entire social media account because they are embarrassed now of the things that they said during COVID and they had to take all of their posts down and start their, some of them have rebranded because they lost so much business from their online processing. Wow. So hmm. I just think fear is like the kind of thing that is best done in relationship where hmm. you can say, Rick, I went to Trader Joe's and this is what happened. Instead of posting a picture of Trader Joe's emptying with captions yes. to a bunch of people. And yeah. I, so I think that there's a lot of things to be legitimately afraid of. And, you know, you mentioned my husband's time in the war, you know, you know, something that happens on a regular basis. He was trained to know where bombs were hidden. And one of the ways that they knew that is they, they would hire them in piles of trash on the side of the road. And there have been multiple times when we've been on a road trip and my husband has seen a pile of trash on the side of the road and has been completely triggering mm. because in his mind, he was so trained. That's a bomb on the side of the road. Mm. Those impressions can be left for a long time and they can cause hysteria, but, but we have techniques to say, this is America. That's just trash on the side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. all that that really is. And it's yep. not a bomb, but yep. we have to be careful to let fear come in and just seep and drive. Yeah. And you're describing really what, what Jesus was blunt about that he, he warned us against um, being uh, attached to or invested in our outside anxieties that will be just tossed to and fro by these waves. If we if we overinvest ourselves in these circumstantial fears and you're so right that social media also magnifies those circumstantial fears into a froth. We're living in a stormy sea. So it's no wonder that we're being tossed this way and that. And I love what you said there about processing through relationship. Here, here's, here's the way I'll close this off. I'm just thinking about this story. If you think about the, the crowd's reaction to Jesus, they do not process their fears through relationship. Instead, they look at Jesus, they look at the formerly uh, demon-possessed man in his right mind now, they look at their swine all drowning in the sea, and they, they stand back from relationship. They say, please leave. You, you've got to leave this area. We can't be in relationship with you. Let, let's just uh, suppose for a moment that they chose opposite, that they were uh, caught up in wonder about what had happened, and they asked Jesus even a single question about who he is. Like the Samaritan woman at the well asked Jesus questions. She stayed in the conversation. She stayed in the relationship. Even when he did something that seemed supernatural, that he knew all about her narrative, all about her story without her ever telling him, she didn't leave. She stayed in relationship with him and processed her fear through that relationship. The one person in this story who does that is the demon-possessed man himself. Once he's in his right mind and the crowds have implored him to leave, he's the one imploring him to stay, or at least let me accompany you, let me go with you. He's the one who wants to be in relationship with Jesus and work out his fears of what has just happened to him in relationship with him. And Jesus says, no, this is not the time for you to come to me. You need to go re-enter into relationship with the very people who just re rejected me and live out this healing, this, this restoration, this rescue with them. Help them by relating to them to lay down their fears. 
because they can't be in relationship with me right now. But if, the, but if you go back and begin to relate normally to them and begin to restore relationship with them, perhaps they'll be able to see me in a different light in the future and can invite me instead of push me away. When they begin to see that, that the fruit of all of this that has had in your life, maybe, maybe they won't push me away. But I think that's, that is a great thing to, to end this episode with when we think about our fears that we process them always through relationship with each other and in an honest way with Jesus. Instead of simply trying to mitigate these fears, that we take them like our little uh, paltry offering. We offer to Jesus our fear. This is, this is our act of worship, to, to recognize and name our fears and then offer them to him. Let him enter into those fears, talk to us about them, show us where the rope leads down into our soul, where is the trigger. And once the trigger is in the, the light, it has less control over us. It has less influence and leverage over us. It doesn't mean that it goes away. It just means that once it's in the light, it doesn't have as much controlling influence on us. So let him bring, out, bring whatever's down there in our depths up into the light. Um, he can do that. Um, but only if we stay connected to him, only if we offer to him the fears that we're facing instead of keep them from him, or even worse, do what the crowd did and say, I really don't need you right now. I got to take care of this fear on my own. Please leave. We would never say that verbally, but our, but our actions and our decisions and our choices, sometimes fundamentally, that's what we're doing. So Becky, I thought it'd be interesting for us to close off uh, the episode by taking a risk. Um, so uh, what we're going to do here is just, just briefly at the close of this episode, we're going to pray for the people listening to this episode right now. And the way we're going to do this is uh, we're just going to pause for a minute and invite Jesus to pinpoint a fear that a listener might be facing right now. We're going to ask him to show us because we don't know, but he does. And then we're just going to pause in silence for a moment and then ask him to show us a fear that someone listening right now is having and then we're just going to briefly pray for that fear in the way that Jesus guides us. So, um, so let's, let's head into this. Lord Jesus, uh, we only want to hear your, your voice, not our own, and definitely not the voice of the enemy right now. So we take authority over our own voice and authority over the voice of the enemy. And Jesus, just, just like children, we're coming to you now to ask you to uh, uh, show us a fear that someone listening right now is having and show us how to pray for that person. So we'll just be quiet for a second. Please show us. So I, I got a picture in my head, just popped in my head of an empty, a totally empty grocery store shelf. And I just kind of quickly asked Jesus, what's that about? And, um, and what I, what I sense from him is that uh, somebody, somebody, that's a metaphor for somebody who's looking at an inability to provide for their family right now. So let me just pray for you, if that's you. So Lord Jesus, you are, you are our provision. You don't just provide, you, are, you yourself are our provision. So I ask on behalf of uh, that person or persons who's afraid right now, that they will not be able to provide, that you show them 
your character as provider, that you would be their provision in the midst of this, that, and that uh, what you do could only be explained by your miraculous intervention in their provision. So please enter into that provision right now and begin working to provide for that person in your name. Becky, did you, uh, anything pop into your head? So I, I just saw just empty blackness. And hmm. at first I thought that that maybe like meant the end. Hmm. Um, but Jesus really poked me and said, no, it has to do with a fear of sin being everywhere. Hmm. Um, that some of our listeners are dealing with a fear that sin will come in and rule the world. Hmm. And that they feel very much like they have to control that. Hmm. Um, Would you like to just pray that for that real briefly? Yeah, I'd like to, to pray for that. God, I, um, it sounds like there's some fear that um, sin is going to overcome your light, God. And I just want, um, I just want to show that person or that group of people um, just how powerful your light can shine, God. So in a time when they feel like darkness is closing in, that you would just bring light hmm. and shine it as brightly as possible for them, God, that they would um, turn back to a belief that your light is more powerful than any darkness on earth hmm. and that you are in full and complete control of everything that goes on um, around us, God. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for uh, playing on Jesus' playground there, Becky. And it's so great to, to do this with you again. And, and listeners, thanks for listening. Um, if you want to check out any of the, the links to things that we've talked about today, you can just head over to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, the longest earl in the history of earls, painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. And you're going to look for season five, episode 36. And don't forget to head over to thejesuscenteredaily.com and get your free sample of my new daily devotional, The Jesus Center Daily. Watch the video that I posted on there. Order a copy if you want to. And um, and next week, we will uh, launch into episode three of this series, Present Concerns. Not sure what we're going to tackle next week, but it will be interesting. And the, uh, 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 hopefully as often as she can, the Becky Nader will be joining us in this series. So I invite you to, to keep listening, and, and we'll see you again next week. If you uh, want to make sure that you get this podcast and never miss it, you can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.